find other great podcasts like this one at podmoth.network. I'm Abigail. We're sisters. And we believe in ghosts. Welcome to Supernatural Sisters, a podcast all about ghostly encounters, bone-chilling monsters, and basically anything that goes bump in the night. Each week, we talk about a haunted place, a legendary monster, or a story that sends shivers down our spine. And maybe we'll talk about the pottery scene from Ghosts. He's not a ghost in that scene. There are other parts of that movie where he's a ghost. Subscribe wherever you get podcasts. And remember... We, we believe, believe you. you. Welcome to Cruelty Podcast. This is Lillian, and with me is Willow. Hello. And it's still cold case month. In it's case cold case month, and, and it is cold as fuck right now. We're about to get snowed <laughs> on. We're going to get snow. First of all, I'm going to say this. I have a car now. Yes. She and finally was, has a car. Y'all, it was like a... It's almost a year. It was almost a year, mm-hmm. and it was a treacherous journey to get mm-hmm. the car. Mm-hmm. And I don't even want to discuss it for it was I just white knuckled it the whole way there. I had to get a ride from my friend and they drive a Jeep and it just has no doors or anything. And it's freezing. And it's very cold. So, but whatever, I got there and I got a car and it's nice and I'm not going to jinx it any further. So just happy car thoughts for me, please. Knock on wood. Huh? Knock on wood. Oh, um, yes. There we, there we go. go. Uh-huh. All right. So I don't know anything about this case. I don't even know what it's about because I didn't ask. Well, you at least know it's a cold case. Well, that's because it's the theme. Yes. <laughs> Fucking go over there and kill you. <laughs> no patience left. But yes, do tell me what it's yes. about. So this case has been considered America's coldest case. And uh, the story starts with a deathbed confessional. Well, I love them. I fucking love those. So on January, in January of 1994, an elderly woman named Eileen Tessier lay on her deathbed. She called to her daughter and her daughter came to her side and she said, Janet, I have to tell you something. Her mother had great urgency in her voice and she knew that she was about to say something very important. She rushed to her mother's side and held her hand and with her wide blue eyes piercing into her, Eileen said, those two little girls, the one that disappeared, John did it. John did it and you have to tell someone. Janet knew immediately what she was talking about. It was her half brother, John who later changed his name to Jack Daniel McCullough. The last time that she had actually spoken with her brother was when she was around 21. He said to her, you know, I could kill you and dump your body in the hills out there and nobody would ever know. You know, all while playing with his police service revolver pointed right at her. Well, that's terrible. Mm -hmm. But, you know, people who say that 
have often are saying it because they've experienced they've gotten away with it they know yeah that's why they say that that's not something i would say Mm -mm. i mean i know people have jokingly said like oh i know where to hide a body but it's i mean i do Sure. I mean, if I think about it, but I don't think about it. It's just not something I'd say Mm -hmm. because like, I'm just thinking of all the cases I know where the perpetrator has said that to someone else right? as a threat or a joke. It's usually because they've already killed somebody before. Exactly. And most of the time it's, I mean, I don't know in this case, but a lot of the time it's, it's serial killers who've done it over and over and over again and continuously get away with it. You know, I was, it was the, I forget the guy's first name. I think it was Scott Peterson, not the one that killed Lacey Peterson, but it was the cop mm. who just killed every one of his wives. Hmm. He was bragging to people about how he knew how to like cover up evidence and stuff like that. Well, yeah, because he's a cop. Ugh, You're gross. in the office. Just remove the. It's not that hard. No, You're already in there. He's an idiot. Yeah. So <laughs> anyway, <laughs> please go on. Oh yeah. So yeah. So. Basically, whenever she was confronted by her brother <laughs> with a gun pointed at her, telling her that she was just uh, that he was going to kill her, basically, she like had to like kind of like schmooze him in that moment because they're like in a room. He has a gun and is basically threatening to kill her, and she has to like kind of talk her way out the door safely, all in one piece and it was an extremely obviously traumatizing moment and that was the last time she ever saw or heard of or ever talked to her brother like you would like you would yeah and by the time of this bedside confession he had already been ostracized from the family for sexually assaulting some of his sisters jeez and when it came time for eileen's funeral a few weeks after her confession over 300 people came to her funeral but not john was not allowed. Good. Yes. And honestly, a lot of the family had suspicions of his involvement with the little girl's disappearance, like, for decades. All of them thought that he had something to do with it. They just didn't have confirmation. And it kind of sat with the entire family for all of those decades. It just plagued them that they just thought their brother had something to do with it. And they couldn't. So creepy. Yeah. So with their mother kind of saying this and like, you know, this, this, you know, last exhale deathbed confession, you know, there's, there's a huge sense of relief, at least for Janet in that moment. Cause she's like, Oh, at least we were right. At least we know now. Right. Mm-hmm. The case was considered one of America's coldest cases in criminal history. And if it were solved, it would make the coldest case ever solved in America to date. Wow. The incident had taken place almost 40 years prior to the deathbed confession. It was December 3rd, 1957, the first snowfall of the year. And I just feel like it's a little coincidental that there's snow coming tomorrow. Yeah, that is. When this when this episode aired later on, like I think one of the trial days, uh, it snowed. And Maria loved snow. Oh, my gosh. So the the fact that this was the first snowfall of the year and, like, snow kind of repeats throughout the thing, it, it gives me chills and I'm actually really warm. So, yeah, it was the first snowfall of the year, the small suburb of Sycamore, Illinois, right outside of Chicago. Seven-year-old Maria Ridolph was so excited. She could not stop talking about how it was about to snow. She had anticipated the snowfall all day and... 
she couldn't wait to get to play in the snow with her best friend, Kathy. They got off the bus together. They actually lived a few doors down from each other. So they kind of did everything together. And I don't know so, how that is. I know, huh? <gasps> I know. <laughs> oh, that kind of made me blush. I was like, oh, that's really cute. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Ding dong. <laughs> <I know. laughs> there, I ruined it. <laughs> Whoops. Well... So she can't stop talking about the snow. And so they get off the bus. They walk to Maria's house. She invites Kathy in and they sit there making um, paper snowflakes all while watching out the window waiting in anticipation That's for too the snow. Cute. And I don't like where this is going. It's I'm so gonna be fucking sad. precious. It's just ridiculously precious. Maria had the most distinctive personality. She was just like a little firecracker. She just was completely herself. She had her own way about things. She was not fearful. She had a lot of confidence. Um, and she loved Christmas time and this is early December. So I don't know. Snow is magical to her. So it gets to be around five o'clock. Right. And closer to five they begin to like get their things together it still hasn't snowed so they have to go and have dinner and um and kind of wait out the snowfall from there now during this time actually around 4 15 a few blocks away so simultaneously while these girls are cutting out little snowflakes two other girls right up the road a few blocks away saw a man in an overcoat walking along the street by the library something about them something about this man made them feel really uneasy it kind of made their stomach drop to see him Oh, I know that feeling. You know what I mean? You yes, can't really put your finger on it, but you're like... Mm-mm. It's like your animal senses mm-hmm. that you don't quite understand giving you a heads up like, mm-hmm. hey, this is bad Listen and to you those. fuck off. Listen to your gut feelings. Always. Always. So they did, and they kind of jumped into a nearby restaurant and kind of hid out in this, like, really, like this random restaurant. They just went in there. And when they came out, the man was gone. But in his place in the street, strewn about like confetti were naked photographs of women. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You left them there so then poor children mm-hmm. would see it. Mm-hmm. And not just that, over the past few months prior to this, there was someone was going around writing obscenities on things, especially on the corner of the cross street by Maria's house where Maria liked to play. There was this huge tree that a lot of the kids like to climb and play under and it's like right by a stop sign and on that tree someone was writing like n- nasty things I, it never said what they were writing i'm assuming like drawing penises or something but it was it was just really suspicious and i feel like it's important to the case that this is happening like right around the same time and that man was spotted at the exact same time that all of this is happening Mm. The two girls didn't get a very good look at the man's face. No, they just creep, yeah, he, no. He, he, you don't you don't want to see him long enough. You want to run away. Yeah. But yeah, so they around five o'clock, they have dinner with their family. Maria's having her favorite meal, which was rabbit, carrots, potatoes, and a glass of milk. It's very wholesome. <laughs> it's very wholesome. She got she got two legs of rabbit in when she looked up and saw that the snow had started. And she got so excited. She couldn't finish her food. She was like, Mom, can I please go? 
She was like, yeah, of course. And, you know, she bugged the shit out of her mother. Well, yeah. she, she, I think she's one of three or four, I think she has like three other siblings with the household of four and she's the youngest. And so, and she always played outside in her front yard. That mm-hmm. was so common. Um, again, this is the 1950s. This is a, and there's nothing wrong with children playing outside in the front yard. We <laughs> shouldn't even have to have that discussion. No, not at all. Especially with her best friend right there. And so, yeah, she started jumping up and down and was like, you know, I got to call Kathy and make sure that she can go. So she calls up Kathy and Kathy's like, I can go outside. Can you? And she's like, no time for talk. Can you do it? And Kathy just like looked over at her mother and her mother was already excited for her. She didn't even have to do chores that night. Her mother immediately had actually um, some warm clothes in the dryer. This is 1957. Kathy's family was the first house in the neighborhood to have a dryer. That's cute. Isn't that precious? It is. And so Kathy got to put on fresh dryer clothes before going out and playing in the snow. That's cute. It's really precious. You know, I'll say what I will about my mama, but when I was real little, she would always put my robe in the dryer before I got up for school in the morning. Oh. Yeah. That's so nice. It was nice. That's really nice. That's a nice feeling. It was. Mm Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, and again, this is December time. But right before the equinox, so it's really, really dark at five o'clock, right? Mm-hmm. So many people were like, "What the fuck are these children doing out at dark?" Like, hmm. it's, in their front yard, yeah, man. and it's five o'clock. It's snowing. They're yeah. having fun. Yeah, yeah. They but should be able people... to go out at three o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. if they want to without exactly. being bothered. Exactly. We need to shift the focus away from from blaming the victims all the time and saying, "Well, you should have done this and this and this." Well, maybe you, sh- you know. People shouldn't murder and kidnap and hurt. Right. Just saying. It's disgusting. It is. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, at about this time, it's about 530 because they started eating at five. The, the two girls were right outside of the house, right on that street corner, right underneath a street light and a stop sign. So they could see pretty well. And people don't realize, too, that back in the 50s, kidnappings and stuff like that just didn't really happen very much. No. They just didn't. No, not really. Um, but they were playing a game that they had made up like kids do. They made up this game called duck the cars. It doesn't quite, it's not quite as what you, what it sounds like. It sounds like they're like ducking and rolling underneath cars. What they're doing is, is they're crouching out and waiting in the, like on the street corner for a car to come and they wait as long as they can until the beams of the headlights hit hit them and they try to run back to the bushes or wherever they're supposed to hide before the beams of the headlights hit them. So they're playing this cute little game where you have to stand like in an exposed spot and then run before anybody can see you. It's like that, like this, like, I don't know, getting excited about somebody seeing you or getting caught or something like that. It's like that little kid adrenaline rush kind of game. But, um, that's what they were playing and they were having a fucking grand time. They were hooting and hollering and, just soaking up the evening, having a great time. It was getting cold, and even though the kids were all, like, bundled up and everything, Kathy had forgotten her mittens because she had put everything on so warm that she wasn't thinking about her hands. And so she was like, oh, man, I got... I gotta go back home and get my mittens if I'm going to stay out here any longer. It's kind of getting uncomfortable now. So right as she was about to run home and grab her mittens, a man walks up. Oh, God. He looked to be about in his late teens, early 20s. He had blonde hair, a colorful sweater. He was thin with a narrow face, light 
high-pitched voice and big teeth with a gap in between the two front teeth. So very distinctive looking person. He looked friendly, he smiled, and he said, hello, little girls, are you having fun? He introduced himself as Johnny. He asked the little girls if they liked dollies. As an adult, this sounds very creepy, but as little girls, they're excited to meet a new well, yeah. friend. This doesn't sound creepy to a seven and eight-year-old. He's not a stranger girl. now. He just introduced himself. He's Johnny. Mm -hmm. He likes he likes to play with dollies too. Oh my God, we have something in common. <sighs> so gross. Then and of course they all like started jumping up and down. They fucking love dolls, especially yeah. Maria. She's like, oh my God, let me tell you about all my dolls. Then he asked if one of them wanted a piggyback ride. Kathy didn't feel comfortable just jumping on a stranger's back. She was very shy. But Maria loved piggyback rides. She fucking loved piggyback rides. She had an older brother, you know, yeah. she had older siblings. Her daddy would do too. Dad, of course, you know, she had a very loving family. So she didn't think anything of it. She fucking loved piggyback rides. And so she was super extra excited. She jumped on his back and he zoomed off running down the street. He went about 20 feet and then came back and then let her down and then was like, okay, Kathy, do you want a piggyback ride? And she's like, no, I, I, I'm, mm -mm. <laughs> no, thank I, you. Mm -mm. Nope. no. So Maria had such a good time that she wanted to go grab one of her dolls from her house to not only show him since he asked about dolls, but also to take her doll on the piggyback ride. She's like, I'm having so much fun. My doll should have this much fun too. This is pitiful. Yeah. Cause I was definitely that girl. I had all the dolls. Um, so she ran inside. She got her doll. Her mom actually saw her grabbing her cloth doll and stopped her and was like, mm -mm, you're gonna have to grab the rubber doll because it's wet outside and you're not getting that doll messed up. So there was like a conversation and exchange. Yeah. You know, her father was watching his Western on TV. Her brother was listening to records and her mother was reading the paper and she went and grabbed her doll and you know, said goodbye, I love you, and then ran right out the, the door. And that was the last time they'd see her. Oh, I hate that. Yeah. So not a lot is talked about what happened during this time with the man and Kathy, because, again, they are left on the street corner while Maria goes in to get the doll. Mm -hmm. Not a lot is talked about. A lot of people want to sensationalize this, like, five-minute window where Maria was running inside and want to say that like Kathy was sexually assaulted or something bad happened to her during that time that made her feel uncomfortable. Nothing, nothing happened. Mm -mm. Nope. They stand, they stood right there. He wanted to come off as trustworthy. Yeah. He did mention like, Hey, do you want to go for a ride around the block in my car? Cause it's nice and warm. Like he asked creepy ass questions, but when she said no, he didn't push it. Well, it would have made it hard. Yeah, and he acted. He said things in a way where it, he acted like he cared, you know, because yeah. it's cold. You're a little girl. You should be warm, you know. Mm -hmm. So when Maria comes back, she, you know, is very proud of her doll. She shows off her doll. And while she's doing that, Kathy is like, okay, look, I'm going to go. She asks what time it is before she leaves because she's like, okay, I need to go get my mittens, but I need to make sure before I leave what time it is so that way I know when I get home if I have enough time to play. Yeah. Right? So she asked what time it was, and the man said it was 7 p.m. So they'd gotten out there about 5.30. That means it would have been about an hour and a half that they'd been playing outside in the snow. 
if that was even the right time. But so she she's like, okay, it's seven o'clock. I still have some time. I'm going to go home, get my mittens. She got her mittens. Her mom actually said later that it was about 645 that this happened. But she got her mittens and she came back out there and Maria had jumped on his back with her doll to get a piggyback ride. And by the time that Kathy had gotten back to the spot, Maria was nowhere to be found. Yeah, he took off with her. Yeah. So Kathy started screaming her best friend's name. She started screaming for Maria over and over and over again, searching everywhere, searching all their hiding spots. Because, again, they were playing kind of a hide-and-go-seek kind of game. Yeah. And Maria was very mischievous, so she thought that could could definitely be an option. Yeah. Mm So she searched and searched, but she couldn't find Maria anywhere. She ran to Maria's house and told Maria's 11-year-old brother, who answered the door. And at first, Maria's parents actually thought that she was either playing a prank or that she had just wandered off. Because previously that year, like a few months prior, they had actually called the police and had missing, like, a, like a missing persons kind of group looking for her. Because she'd run off. She, they found her in the cemetery right around the corner, just looking around. Just and I'm like, kid. girl, that's me. I get that. Yeah. I was that way. I would wander off all the time. Mm-hmm. Same. <laughs> but, um, yeah, they also thought maybe she was still playing that hiding behind cars prank. And so since all of this was you know, kind of in their storyline. They didn't really want to worry the cops too much right now or themselves, I don't think. But I think they were just hoping that it was just Maria being Maria. So they sent Kathy and the 11-year-old brother out to search for Maria. But when it had been an hour of them searching and still no Maria... They got worried. mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, it immediately became... A huge deal. The police were called. Chicago FBI got involved and the U.S. military got involved. Like the U.S. FBI got like everybody was involved. Even um, J. Edgar Hoover himself was like in contact with the family and was like, you give me daily updates. Wow. On this case. Yeah, it was a really, really big deal. For months, investigators stayed in Maria's parents house. Like Waiting their for house like ransom calls. Yes, or something. their house yeah, became yeah. a headquarters, and then they actually took an entire hotel. It was just a small town. They took this entire hotel over. Like the FBI took so it over, so they could have a task. So force. they could actually have yeah, like a, a yeah, headquarters for their task force. <laughs> like the whole the whole entire town got involved. It was a town of seven thousand people. It's, I mean, it's big to us, but small to the rest of the world. But, yeah, the entire town turned itself inside out. They basically formed their own militia and, like, were pe- like they were men going door to door with guns. That's scary. Searching people's houses. It's terrifying. And illegal. And, yeah, but. <laughs> back then it was illegal. You know, they had, they felt like they had to do kind of, you know, what they had to do. They eventually, like, a few days into the search, they did find Maria's doll. But it was in the neighbor's yard way after they had already searched that area. So it was definitely planted. planted. Mm-hmm. Now, there are reports that maybe like her brother or one of the family members in the initial search saw the footprints in the snow. That would be, you know, the adult footprints with Maria's child footprints 
leading off into a certain direction and then the child footprints end, which they're assuming that's where she got into the car. But after, you know, just a few hours of the investigation, all those footprints were trampled over. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So... They didn't really have very much information. All they had was a doll and the observations of an eight-year-old girl. Yep. Maria's best friend, Kathy, was taken in for questioning. She told them everything she could. She told them that the man was wearing a cover sweater, that he was average height, blonde hair, gap tooth, everything that she could possibly think of to describe this man named Johnny. Kathy was put into protective custody during the investigation in fear that whoever took Maria may also come for her. Yeah. And this was a very big fear, obviously. Roadblocks were set up. They stopped and searched every vehicle. They opened every trunk of every car. Military airplanes and helicopters searched from above. Armed citizens, like I said, walking the streets with shotguns. Searching every nook and cranny of this town for this little girl. Maria's mother said that she was the only one that could console Maria. Something about Maria is that she, her mother called her a screamer. (laughs) Um, She would scream and, and basically have a very loud meltdown Anytime somebody were to scold her or get onto her or put her in any situation that made her uncomfortable or that she didn't like. And so Maria's mother's biggest fear was that the person that took her would probably end up hurting her because of her reactions. I can understand that because the child would be hysterical. Right. Yeah. Because her mother was, I mean, very frequently called to the school to come console her daughter. She was the only one that could. And so she knows that if her daughter is in any type of panic situation, it's not going to be pretty. She's not going to shut up. She's not going to stop fighting. And that could be really bad for her. Yeah. Unfortunately, like it shouldn't have to be this way. But alas, here we are. So, yeah, Maria's mother actually put out like a press conference, like a press release for the news and put out a statement saying, to the offender she was like look you made a mistake you've made a mistake okay she was like god forgives mistakes let's make it right she's like trying to really be nice she's like i forgive you i just want my baby girl and she was like maria i want you to not cry okay oh it's awful I know, and it's, it's so depressing. Um, but she was like, I need you to stay strong. I need you to not cry because we are going to come get you and everything's going to be okay. And she's like trying to calm her down, which I think in a lot of ways that people retell this story, it makes it sound like the mother is, is you know, trying to tell her kid not to cry as if it's like shutting off emotions, as if it's being like no, some type of I'm way. No, that's not taking it at all. Yeah, no, it's, it's very much like she's trying to protect her. Obviously. Mm-hmm. And so they set up a hotline, they set up everything for ransom, they set up like an entire like, you know, the police were by the phones, ready to tap, ready to do it all. And no call ever came in. No. And when no call ever came in, they knew that this wasn't about money. It wasn't an abduction. This this was, was, but like. This was sexually motivated. Yeah. Is what it was. Yeah. 
he wasn't just taking her. No, and he never intended to return her whether no, she cried or not. Not at all. Mm-mm. Not at all. So the FBI got together a list of all the people in the area who had been convicted sex of sex crimes or um, violent crimes, crimes on children, any type of things like that, even transients, even people that may be, you know, coming in and out that have criminal records. Thousands and thousands of tips came in. And that was something that a lot of the locals were like, we didn't know how many sexual predators Mm -hmm. are in our area until something like this comes out. Yeah, that's typically how it goes. Mm -hmm. But most of the tips in the area were just people that they suspected were gay. Well, that's lovely. Isn't that disgusting? Thank you, 1950s. I know. For that. I know. Not that it's much different today. No, but it just, they, they hear, oh, child abduction. It must be. Well, listen. They think. Well, I'd like to point this out really quick because mm-hmm. it's relevant to our last case yeah. that we covered, too, mm-hmm. is that frequently um, anti gay, anti-trans, just anti-LGBTQ in general will demonize them because, you know, they'll pull out the, well, what, think about the children. They're child predators. They did it with gay men. Right. right. And now they're doing it with trans people. Right. Because it didn't work ultimately with gay men because history has proven that that's just not true. And it's not true for trans people either. So y'all don't buy into that hateful, dumbass rhetoric. Observe. Observe with your eyes. With your eyes. <laughs> the numbers are there. You don't have to have dis- like. Mm-mm. You don't have to have. Don't let nobody tell you what to think. You find out for yourself. Yeah. But yeah, so throughout this entire investigation, like I mean, the entire investigation, pretty much, Kathy is just having to go in and go in over and over, like pretty much every thing. day. This eight-year-old little girl is having to go in with police, being escorted by police, and having to go in and be asked questions constantly, constantly asked questions. And her description of the man Johnny stayed the same the entire time. He was between 18 and 24, around 5'10", blonde hair, high-pitched voice, gap tooth. Her mother would drill into her, telling her that she had to remember that she was the only one alive that saw him that night and that she is the only one that was going to be able to save Maria well, and solve well, this case. Well, I mean, I get why they told her that, but that's so much pressure but this, on that poor the, child. This girl was just, it was really hounded into her that she had to keep that image of him in her mind because she's looking at thousands and thousands of photos Constantly, They're giving her lineups after lineups after lineups throughout this case. And, you know, her mother's just like, you got to focus, focus on the prize kind of thing. And the whole case feels like it's weighing on her shoulders. And she's fucking eight years old. Mm. It's just, it's really sad. I can't remember shit from when I was eight. Nope. Thanks, trauma. (laughs) But yeah, she would she would review thousands of photos and none of them looked like Johnny. They began to crack down on the investigation on December 22nd, 1957, almost 20 days after Maria went missing. Kathy saw a mugshot in the lineup and recognized one as Johnny. Out of the thousands and thousands of photos, now just a few days before Christmas, Maria's favorite holiday. It seemed as though Kathy may have saved the day. It was a man named Thomas Rivard, and he was 35 years old, 
only five foot four, and he was also accounted for for being at work that day yeah, during that time. Just all that pressure. It was not him. No, not at all. So, um, another suspect that um, police thought was a was. Uh, a good fit for the case was a, a trucker named Donald Arbuckle. He had been in the area on December 3rd and had actually kidnapped another little girl close by, but Kathy said it didn't look like Johnny. A local factory worker named Johnny Hilborn was believed to be a potential suspect. He admitted to talking to two young girls on the night of December 3rd. He was also convicted of molesting his five-year-old daughter. God. A month after Maria's disappearance. He refused to take a polygraph test. He lawyered up before the FBI could even start questioning him. But Kathy took one look at him and said it wasn't the guy. One person in the area stood out because he fit the description perfectly to a T. Spit an image. It's as if the description, you're reading it while looking at his picture. Dang. He had actually lived a few doors down from Maria. She knew who he was. He knew her older sister. His name was John Tessier. Mm -hmm. Oh, man. And again... He fit the description perfectly. His name, Johnny. His family called him Johnny. He was 18 years old. He was stood at 5'11". He had blonde hair, a gap tooth, long face, very skinny. He was even known to give his sisters and other little girls in the neighborhood piggyback, piggyback rides. rides. He was known for piggyback rides. During the initial investigation, as police went door to door asking all the neighbors all the questions that night, they knocked on the Tessier family door. Eileen Tessier answered and told police that her son, John, was home that night. The whole time. He never left. He was home. That he was known throughout the neighborhood. Everybody knew him. Everybody loved him. She was like, those little girls knew who, who my Johnny was. They would have known if that was, you know, a different Johnny. And she said, my Johnny anyways couldn't do anything like this. But the little girls standing behind their mother, Johnny's little sisters, they overheard this conversation of their mother and police. And they were like, that's not true. He, he definitely could and would. M Mama's lying to police. Mm-hmm. And this like made like a, a huge imprint in their in their memories. They knew this night because this was the night that mama lied to the police because their brother was not home that day. And they knew what he was capable of. I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Police took 18 year old John in for questioning and he passed the lie, det lie detector test flawlessly that's why they're inadmissible in court friends yeah he told police that he actually wasn't home that night like his parents had said he said that he was in rockford which is a town about 45 minutes away um at a recruiting office signing up for military training to be in the air force he had even made a phone call at 6 57 p.m from rockford to his house asking for his dad to come pick him up 
it's believed, especially during the investigation right now, that Maria was abducted at 7 p.m. And so if he made that call 45 minutes away around the same time, there's no way it could have been him. So they actually got the phone records to confirm that he did make a phone call from a phone box and a pay phone. You had to call collect. They had to say your name to, you know, the mm-hmm. whole thing. So that was confirmed. He made that phone call at that time. So he had a positive al- alibi and they let him go. They took him off the, al- the suspect list and he- they never got a photo from him to submit into so the lineup. Ne- so Kathy so never shot. No, she didn't. And the next day, as soon as he was let go, he joined the military and basically fucked uh, off. Yeah, he sure did. And that was the last time the name John Tessier was ever brought up in the case until his mother's dying words. It was completely off police radar. In Christmas of 1957, it seemed like that was the marker for when the case went cold yeah that was it they ran out of leads they did they ran out of leads they they quit moving forward on the case that was also maria's favorite holiday like i said she was really looking forward to this one she had begged her mother for a typewriter and her mother got her a typewriter i hate this story yeah i know i almost threw up in my mouth because i want to start crying um sorry i got a got a little choked up but she it was especially the the siblings. The siblings knew that once Maria didn't show up for Christmas, it was over. that yeah. was it. Mm-hmm. And again, they had like a lot of people from the FBI from all over the United States flown in to do this case. So once Christmas hit, all the FBI crew went back to their own homes, stayed with their own families. Not many of them came back to Illinois. And yeah, that's when the case pretty much went cold. Mm-hmm. Throughout the early part of 1958, Kathy would continuously be questioned, shown photos. None of them were Johnny. Then, in April of 1958, just five months after Maria went missing, Maria's body was found. Yeah. It was an elderly couple out foraging for morel mushrooms. Me and Mary's doing that all the time. I know. I'm really excited for this year. Me too. Um, They were looking underneath this rotted tree that had fallen over, which, you know, is a really good spot there. Indeed. So they peeked underneath there and they thought they had seen like maybe some bones of a deer or something. But then they noticed the scraps of clothing, children's clothing. Oh, it's so terrible. Yeah. She was found off of a road called Route 20, almost 100 miles away from her house in Sycamore. She was, she was found pretty much almost completely skeletonized. Her hair was still intact. Her shoes, coat, and pants were missing. But her socks and t-shirt and undershirt were still on. She was identified by her dental records and her mother identified her clothing. That's so awful. That's, yeah, it's one of the worst Can't parts. even imagine. <laughs> she identified where she had sewn a patch on her shirt. Yep. Mm-mm. No photos were taken of the scene out of respect to the family, which I know that could, that could really harm the case, 
but well they they don't do that anymore no but this is 1957 58 but yeah yeah it's just it's it's even that much more heartbreaking so at first, the cause of death was unclear due to the advanced de- decomposition, but it was later determined when they exhumed the body in 2011 that Maria had been stabbed in the throat. God. So she didn't get any of that, like, resolve until 2011. It's awful. 50 years later. So, Though that may have helped solve, like, where her body was dumped, it didn't solve who did it, where the crime actually took place, because this is obviously a dump site. It didn't solve any of the other millions of unanswered questions. Since Maria's body was found in Illinois, it she didn't cross state lines, so the FBI had to back out of the case. That is true. And it went to local authorities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They continued to show lineups to Kathy until 1961 when Kathy was 12. My God regular lineups. Poor Kathy. Over the years, the leads and suspects dwindled and the case gathered dust. This case had such a profound effect on Kathy that she was constantly looking over her shoulders, scared that Johnny would just be after her. Parents of other children in school wouldn't let Kathy play with their kids. Oh, that's so terrible. For the exact same reason. It's terrible. Because they thought that Johnny would come kill their kids, too. Oh, my God. So Johnny didn't just take Maria, her best friend, which to Kathy, Maria, Kathy is, like, very calm, very quiet, very shy, very, you know, reserved. Maria was her spitfire. Maria was her, like, zest, her oomph, her her one way to communicate with other people and gain new friends. So now, not only did she lose her best friend she lost every friend she would ever potentially meet that's so sad but she eventually grew up and you know the case went cold and everything and it felt like Kathy felt like it was her fault you know that the case went cold and that really sucks because that pressure shouldn't be put on a child like that but she she knew that she couldn't necessarily change the way that things were, but she knew that she could at least change the way that she treated her children, the way that, you know, because so many people had treated her like this, like she was something to like be feared and something to overprotect. Like she said that her mother, her parents were so overprotective that she felt like a prisoner. Because she was. Yeah. She was a prisoner. The FBI held her prisoner. Pretty much. I mean, it was for her own safety, but she doesn't understand that. No. So she said that now as a mother, she went on to letting her kids make her their own decisions and their own mistakes and basically doing the opposite of what, what her parents did. But no matter where they moved, no matter what life changes they made... Kathy would always be looking over her shoulder thinking Johnny was going to come get her because Johnny was still not caught. On November 19th, 1997, almost 40 years later, the case was officially closed. But not solved. Police suspected William Henry Redman as the killer. 
He was a carny, a truck driver, a known serial killer who had been targeting little girls. He had been charged with criminal homicide, murder, involuntary manslaughter, kidnapping, simple assault, aggravated assault, unlawful restraint, incident assault, and endangering the welfare of children. That's a long, <laughs> it's a long list. list. Um, all of that was he was charged in nineteen nine or nineteen eighty eight. But the judge ruled that the detectives were playing that the detectives weren't playing by the rules. Like that okay. that that verbiage was in the news report that I read. So I was like, okay, that's a little weird weird way of like wording a weird that. Eighties movie, the way you <laughs> worded it. It really is because so he was like, you're not playing by the rules, and then he set the bail for a dollar, and then released him. So I don't know what he meant by that. Jesus fucking Christ. But what the fuck? So when they released him, like, or at some point during the investigation on that, they had found that when they searched his house, they found a trove of soiled panties. God, disgusting. And I think maybe they had, like, used that as evidence and maybe the police were like miffed about how the search and seizure went because sometimes that happens but whatever either way detectives in detroit and cleveland and new york were all trying to get dna from all these cases because this guy had gone all over Mm -hmm. the fucking place grabbing dna all this stuff they're like trying to get this guy back into jail and he dies in 1992 I mean, good. It's just like, like, okay. (laughs) But they didn't get him charged on all those, even though they know that he did them. And then they wanted to just end this case. So they tacked it on. So they tacked it on. There's not even any evidence that he was even in Sycamore, Illinois on December 3rd, 1957. Wow, I'm proud of myself. I'm really bad at remembering numbers. Yeah, you remember that shit. (laughs) Thanks. Um, But yeah, they just did that just to close the case. One of the sergeants was like, there was like some, somebody was like, yeah, well, he's running for election coming up. So he wanted to solve as many cases as he could. So he could get elected. And I was like, well, I mean, I don't, I, (laughs) stupid. Yeah. Stupid. Yeah. So in 1994, uh, when Eileen told Janet on her deathbed confession, Janet knew she had to do something, obviously, with this information. She tried to contact local law enforcement several times, begging them to reopen the case, but they just simply weren't interested. They were like, no, that case, that case is closed. That's old news. I'm not going to reopen it. And she's like, but you have to. Like, there's a confession. But the thing with deathbed confessions, even though they feel really saucy and, like, super exciting, the thing is, is that person died. Now they can't be questioned. Yeah. So, you know, and it's hearsay. It is hearsay that we'll get into that later. So one day around 2008, Janet had a chance encounter with an author named Mark Leb- Lemberger. That's very German. Um, he had written a book on a century old unsolved murder case involving a child. Janet started telling him about this case and her brother's possible involvement. Mark told her that she needed to find someone who would investigate this case, quote, with the tenacity of a bulldog. Yeah, do it. 
She did some more digging and found that John Tessier, her brother, had actually changed his name to Jack McCullough. Their mother's maiden name. So Janet decided that this was good enough information to take to local law enforcement and see, say, see, look, he changed his name and he's hiding in the Pacific Northwest. You have to get him. This is very suspicious. Mm -hmm. You have to look into this. So she just happened to talk to the right person. uh, Captain Tony Ropez. She called, he contacted her back, and he told her that his agency would not look or would not just look into this case, that they wouldn't stop digging if they until they found something. They would keep digging. He said that his officers were like bulldogs. Ah, uh, synchronicities. Unprompted, completely synchronistic. She said that every hair on her body It did on mine. Yeah, I know. I know the same whenever I heard it too. So she was like, okay, we're on to something. We've got this. So they reopened the case and uncovered some really grave details about John's life. The new team of investigators contacted all of Tessier's siblings. One of the sisters confessed that John had made her watch while he sexually assaulted other girls. And then he would later make her get sexually assaulted by his friends. That's so terrible. They found more and more women who came forward talking about the sexual assaults of John Tessier, including one of his sisters and um, and a few others who were children that lived in the same neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Investigators also talked to one of John's ex-wives, and she said that she had found a naked photo of John's 12-year-old daughter from another marriage taped under the bottom of his drawer. Oh, that's fucking wretched. Fucking disgusting. Uh, probably why they got a divorce. Good. Yeah. Now, his daughter, her name was Christine Marie Tessier. That's really fucked up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When she was 34, she went missing. Well, there's a twist I did not expect. She was found dead a month later, discarded in a drainage ditch on a golf course. Allegedly, she was last seen with her boyfriend, but no one was ever charged in this murder. So it's a cold case, too. Mm Mm-hmm. A woman named Pamela Long told investigators a story about how when she was seven years old, same age as Maria living in the exact same neighborhood, an older boy approached her and asked her if she wanted a piggyback ride. She accepted, and just as she was climbing on this boy's back, her father ran up, shouting at him, saying that it was absolutely inappropriate. It is. He pulled his daughter off of the teenage boy and told the boy to never come near his daughter ever again. He later told detectives, like, I knew who that boy was. John Tessier. They then wanted to bring in, like, the now grown-up Kathy for mm-hmm. a lineup. Yeah. Um, to see if John Tessier would be the suspect. But they didn't have a high school photo of him because John Tessier didn't finish high school. He got expelled at the age of 16 for beating the shit out of a teacher. He's a lovely human, clearly. <laughs> They turned to an ex-girlfriend of John who was dating him around the girlfriend that he was dating in 1957 and got a picture from her. Oh, wow. 
yeah, it was like a dance photo or something. It was like for like a, they didn't go to prom, obviously, because it wasn't in school, but it was like one of those things, like a sock hop or something. But so it was like a formal dance photo. And so she sent it in. And when police got the package, they opened it up. They took the photo out of the frame and out drops a train ticket. From December 3rd, 1957, it is unpunched, unused, and it's from, it's like a government-issued train ticket. For joining the military, which was, he didn't do. It was the ticket that he was supposed to use to take the train up to Rockford that he, he said, mm-hmm, he Oh, shit. Train. He never took that train. So this led police to believe that he hadn't taken that train. So that means that he probably drove himself there, which would have bided him some time, which could have potentially allowed him to be in the neighborhood right about the time of Maria's disappearance. (sighs) Did he like make the phone call and then drive back? I... So, okay, I'll I'll get to the timeline. Okay. 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 So, yeah, this new piece of evidence kind of like switches the timeline up a little bit because the seven o'clock isn't like a permanent timeline. Okay. I mean, but as far right now, they think that she got abducted at 7 p.m. Because when Kathy went to grab her mittens, Johnny said it was seven. But also her mother said it was 645 A few witnesses saw the two girls outside between 6.05 and 6.30. So 6.30 is kind of the latest that they were seen by observers outside. Maria's dad was watching a Western that aired between 6.30 and 7 p.m. So when she came inside, it had to have been at least a little bit after 6.30 because his dad was watching that Western. A delivery boy and a bus driver did not see anyone when they passed by the corner where the girls were playing at around 6.20 to 6.30, respectively. So, it, the the timeline is askew. It's squishy. It yeah. could go, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. He had the time, is what you're saying. There is a chance that if she was abducted at 6.15 instead of 7, he would have been able to get her in the car and drive the 45 minutes to Rockford to make that phone call. He could have just stuffed her in the in the trunk of his car or something and made that drive. He did talk to some recruiters that was confirmed, but he could have just had her in the car while he was talking to the recruiters. The police talked to the people who lived in the area at the time, and several people said that they saw John driving his car around midday that day. He had a Pontiac with flames painted on the side. Fucking lame. <laughs> So everyone knew whose car that was. It was kind of an eyesore. It stuck out. And also, Johnny never let anyone drive his car, ever. Like, that wouldn't be a thing, that somebody else would be driving that car. So if you saw it, he was in there. Right. But uh, whenever he was asked by police, he conveniently said that he sold it the day before. Hmm, I don't believe weird. that. There's no paper trail there, so. No, he lied. He had originally told the police that he was hanging out with his girlfriend that night whenever he got home, that they were interrupted with the search for Maria and that him and his friend went out to search with the rest of the group to search for Maria. He even told police that he was one of the first people to call FBI about the case. 
that never happened. No. And he, they asked the friend who he supposedly went to search with. They were like, no, he wasn't at that search party. They contacted the girlfriend and she was like, no, we didn't go out that night. My parents wouldn't let me. It was too late. So all of those alibis fell through. Yeah, of course they did. Mm-hmm. When police spoke to the military recruiters that he had gone and saw after 7 o'clock, the recruiters said that John seemed twitchy and nervous and weird. They thought that he was on drugs. The next day he showed up. He had like some sort of like physical that he had to go do. And then he had to show back up and do some papers. And then he had to show back up. It was like a several day thing. So the next day, December 4th, after Maria's disappearance, he showed up with a fresh cut on his lip. And even made small talk about Maria's disappearance, jokingly saying that he'd never be a suspect because his girlfriend's father was on the police task force. See, only people who do shit like that say shit like that. And then he oddly, for some reason, pulled out a like uh, like a notebook out of his pocket, like must be a smaller size, but pulled out like a little hand notebook. And it had like a bunch of girls from around town and their measurements. I thought I thought that was weird. That's weird. I don't know what that's about. I don't know what that's about because it was just their bust and their waistline. Well, he's trying to prove he's interested in adults, women his age. Oh, is that what that is? Uh Uh-huh. That's weird. I hope they were all adults. Anyway, in 2010, Kathy, now Kathy Chapman, who was now in her 60s, was presented a photo lineup. The lineup was of high school yearbook photos from 1957, all boys around the same age, except John Tessier's photo was the one that his girlfriend brought in of the dance. Mm-hmm. So his looked completely different than the rest. And in a photo lineup, that's very important. Yeah, it is. Extremely important. Um, all of the, like, all of the yearbook backgrounds had a light background and they were wearing darker clothes. They were all facing one way. And in John Tessier's photo. That's a real photo, problem for a lineup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really, it's psychologically not sound um because his shirt was white and his background was black and it was like completely opposite in all ways and he was facing the camera instead of looking off to the side so no matter what that's the one picture that's off mm-hmm. and psychology says that's always going to be the one that we pick yeah at least most of the time but kathy identified Jack McCalla or John Tessier as Johnny. She immediately pointed to him and she said, I would never forget that face. I mean, I believe her, but it just, they, they shot themselves in the foot on that lineup. Yeah. It's really mm-hmm. annoying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because they could have just gotten a bunch of random photos instead of mm-hmm. just sticking to their or protocol. Or a bunch of dance photos that all well, look similar, you know? I think what they, they're used to using yearbook photos. Yeah. Just like they're used to using mug shots instead of candid. Well, use your brain and don't Mm -hmm. do that. I know. His siblings had found out that he had moved to Seattle, Washington, so Sycamore police contacted Seattle, and it didn't take them long to find him. He was working as a security guard at a retirement facility. He was married to his fourth wife, changing his name when they had gotten married in the mid-90s, actually right around the time of his mother's deathbed confession. Interesting. He changed his name. It was, like I said, an homage to his mother. That was her maiden name. And also his wife had an Irish last name. So it 
kind of fit. Also, his wife wasn't really too excited about being the fourth Mrs. Tessier, so she was actually pretty excited about being a Miss McCullough since there hadn't been one. After the kidnapping, he had joined the Air Force, went to Vietnam, and when he was done, he moved to the Pacific Northwest, became a cop for a few years. But when the investigators took a a deeper look into all the reports during the years that he was a police officer, they started to see a lot of sexual assault issues, one of which was a 15-year-old, quote-unquote, runaway that he was housing. Um... He claimed the allegations were false, but he pled guilty so that way he would get a lesser charge, and he never went back into law enforcement after that. Shocking. Yeah. Said no one. So in his mid-40s, he started a photography business. Throughout the 80s, he contracted models, um, and he would make them drink on set so that way they would be more willing to get into certain positions. He was. He really was. He was really gross about it and he would talk about like how he was with these big agencies and he took photos for magazines. Oh yeah, he lied through his teeth and I doubt any of them actually got paid. When investigators searched his storage units, they found thousands and thousands of photos of women in bondage and fetish wear. Which I mean, like, by itself, I'm it's guilty. Fine. Well, by I, itself, it's fine. Yeah. But like with everything else, it's. But sucks. doesn't that kind of feel like it ties to what happened at four fifteen on December third, where that guy was seen and strung yes. photos everywhere? Yeah, it was him. Doesn't that kind of feel it's like it's him. all tied together? Yeah. So in 2011, John Tessier was taken into custody. His full interrogation video is on YouTube. I have it linked. Highly recommend you watching it because it is a shit show. Uh, I watched the whole thing. And at first he like acts like a police officer. He's like, yeah, we're just all doing our job. I'm cool, right? You're cool. Uh, He actually like tries to act like he's helping with this whole thing again he's like i'm one of the people that called the fbi i loved maria i want maria's case solved too like all that shit then they showed him the lineup that they showed kathy and they were like does any of these pictures look familiar to you because they want him to point and say that's me Mm -hmm. right and so he's like nope i don't mm mm-mm None of these people look familiar. Such bullshit. I know. And they point to him and they're like, he doesn't look familiar. And he's like, not really. They're like, dude, that's you. And they're like, he was like, I guess, I guess it kind of looks like me, but that guy looks more feminine. And I'm sorry. I thought that was the most, that was the dumbest answer. It just sounded like so insecure, but Yeah, eventually he ended up agreeing that, yeah, that was his photo, but it took forever. It was real sloppy. He seemed like he was cooperative at first, and then they had to start asking the uncomfortable questions. Mm -hmm. They started asking questions about the the sexual assaults on his sister, and those he did not want to answer. He wanted to answer questions about Maria. He did not want to answer questions about his sisters or any other people that he may have sexually assaulted. And so whenever he tried, they tried to do a lie detector test and they have to ask all these other questions that aren't pertinent to the case to see what your reactions are. And he just, he would not answer 
any of those other questions and it completely ruled out his um his lie detector test he just started getting really angry and started yelling and it was really just a mess then he kept trying to get the conversation he tried to like take control of the conversation and get it back to maria and when he did he started acting really weird about maria he was like i loved maria he was like, she was beautiful. She was a young, beautiful girl. She, he even said, she's Mexican. She's like half Mexican or something. And you know how they're exotic when they make children together. I don't know. He said it really gross. And I was like, ew, ew. <laughs> like, don't talk about people like that. That's disgusting. But you could tell that he was like very fixated. He was even like, like tearing up about it it was really gross and it was really creepy and police were like no nah, this is enough evidence that we need <laughs> they're like i'm done you're arrested and he was he was arrested for the murder of maria ridolf at first they couldn't get him on for murder quite yet so they actually charged they tried charging him with the sexual assault against his sister but there was just there was just not enough evidence there wasn't enough evidence on it they it was just a really messy court case and they ended up having to throw it out and as far as the maria ridoff trial that trial was really hard in and of itself because it was 50 years old mm -hmm. you know this was like a really hard trial to prosecute happened in september of 2012 and most of the witnesses had already died yep uh, most of what little evidence had been gathered was destroyed by this time. Her body was found skeletonized. And when they like dug it back up, there really wasn't any evidence yeah. there. The case that had become so famous in the area now had too many conflicts of interest. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So they had to get a judge from another county and John's defense team opted a bench trial. So no jury, yep, just the just judge. The judge. Yep. And I think that's a solid decision. I would have made that decision, too. Yeah, I don't blame his defense team for going with that. No, absolutely not. And because everybody was pretty much, you know, long since passed, a lot of the witnesses, the judge allowed hearsay evidence in order, like, like people that had heard, like, the deathbed confessional, yeah. Janet could say the hearsay witness of what her mother told her, since her mother couldn't be there. They allowed certain types of hearsay evidence, but they would not allow FBI hearsay evidence. So they would not allow any evidence from the case unless the FBI agent that was assigned to the case that gathered that specific evidence was alive today. And they were all dead. Oh, wow. Yeah. So there was like, there was so many like potholes and like, this case was really, really difficult. So the original phone calls that John had made and the original statement and all of that were thrown out. Although there was no physical evidence whatsoever linking John to this case or the crime scene, no particular motive other than he's like really skeevy and gross or evidence or any part of the timeline actually all circumstantial it was all circumstantial john tessier was convicted of kidnapping and murder of maria ridoff on september 14th 2012 he was sentenced to life in prison with possibility of parole after 20 years at the age of 73 fucking good pretty much immediately his lawyers started to work on appeals as you would because that case was crap yeah 
in October of 2015, the Tessier family, as well as John's stepdaughter, went on the Dr. Phil show. (laughs) (laughs) There's only a few clips of it. You can't really see the full episode. At least I haven't been able to find it, but there's clips and they do go over the timeline and everything like that and john's stepdaughter stood by her belief that john tessier was a good man who did nothing wrong which john's sister looked her in the eyes and said you're the only woman he didn't hurt oh wow yeah his attorneys continued to fight for an acquittal and In April of 2006, John Tessier's conviction was vacated and he was released from prison. Well, I hate that, but I saw it coming. It was it was that phone call. Mm -hmm. That phone call put him at seven o'clock. Tricky. It really made it even. It's the only piece of evidence that's firm and not circumstantial. And it's Mm -hmm. in his favor, if we're going to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. People just didn't pay attention to the time. But at the when they were questioned, they gave a concrete time, and mm-hmm. that can't be worked around. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Especially with the eyewitnesses exactly. of them placing the girls there, and then the witnesses not placing them there. The timeline is all messed up. All messed up. Someone says they were there at 6.30, and someone says they weren't there at 6.20. It's confusing. But in 2020, uh, John Tessier, at 78 years old, settled a wrongful conviction lawsuit in Seattle for $300,000 also got another $400,000 from other defendants making it close to a quarter million I'll never see that money unfortunately he won't live he won't live to see it no Um, I, I, I can't wait to hear what what happens to him but I do raise the question like did he fucking do it you know what I mean I it's because rough. he because Johnny was seen in a multicolored sweater. The guy with the photos up the road was seen in like a trench coat type jacket. He could have taken it off and left it in his car, but we don't know. There's just so many things. I don't think that this one is solid enough to convict, and so I can't speculate any further. I like him for it, but I'm not I sure. I don't like this man whatsoever, so I think he should get the charge just to get the charge because he fucking sucks. But, of course, that's not how the court of law works, and it no. shouldn't. No, um, it shouldn't. No. It's how innocent people But I just convicted. don't... I know, I know. I just... I don't like I know it. this kind of stuff makes you all mad, but, like, part of it is, like, a lot of us have a lot of ignorance in how criminal law and how cases right. are prosecuted. Right, right. If they didn't have strict rules against, like, circumstantial evidence mm-hmm. and, like appeals that mm-hmm. a lot of innocent people would have been put in jail. Right. So it's there for your own protection. Right. And, and my protection. Yeah. And later this year, we've already decided, I, I can't tell you which month it is, but we are going to be doing a month on guilty and proven until proven innocent type of yeah. cases like this. Mm-hmm. Um, this I just is thought too it was, complicated. It ain't going to be solved to anyone's yeah. satisfaction because there's not enough yeah. evidence. But isn't it so eerily... Yeah. Like the descriptions. Mm-hmm. When you see his photo, it is that description. Yeah. It's literally the image you have in your head whenever yeah, she I describes it, it. It's true. It's just this case really got to me because the whole time I'm like, he did it. He did it. He fucking but did it. Not. And then at the end, it's like, no, he didn't. It's like, well, are you sure? I don't know. God damn it. <laughs> yeah, we don't know on this yeah, one. I I, I'm leaving it as a big question mark. I don't like speculating still, when the people are still alive. Do you know what I'm saying? If right. Like I still think that he should be. 
charged in all the sexual assault cases. Absolutely, but, of course, but we're not talking of course, about evidence. You know, we're not talking yeah. about those. We're talking about Maria's case, which I'm sure is still open. Yeah. It, well, the the weird thing is, is that it's it's all over the internet. If you type in "America's coldest case ever solved," Maria Ridolph pops up, and it's not. No, it's not solved. That is incorrect information. Mm-hmm. It's still cold. And the thing is, is that they thought it was solved in the 90s. They, excuse me, they thought they resolved it in 2016. And now it's like, well, never mind. It's not. Well, I just have a shaky crumbles. It is frustrating because mm-hmm. uh, cold cases frequently are. Right. But hey, I'm not going to do business time, but I will say this. Please go to our link tree because yeah. our merch, our Discord, which is not behind a paywall, come join. Mm-hmm. Our Patreon and all that good stuff is behind there. Don't be scared of no link tree. Go just click on links. it. Go click on it. But if all you can do to support this podcast is listen, we love you and we'll see you next time. Bye. us on your social media platform of choice. Linktree slash cruelty has all of the links. Check out our Patreon for exclusive episodes, merch, ad-free episodes, live ghost hunts, and much more. Please be sure to subscribe. New episodes are uploaded weekly. Thank you so much. See you next time. Music and production by Willie V.